And so there's a lot of theological work we can do around um, mental health as a physical condition like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, um, and that God wants to help us through medications, through Prozac, through Zoloft, through therapy, uh, that God's love and healing comes in prayer, in the Bible, and in Zoloft, and in talking to a counselor. But the damage has been done. Will I ever be enough? If I could take us far from here, make the trouble disappear, you know that I Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to me. Uh, As I've talked about uh, on previous episodes on the podcast before, um, I deal with um, depression. And so that is just a a part of me, something that I have to deal with on a daily basis. For me, uh, what has worked over the years has been, uh, number one, acknowledging it, and admitting to myself that uh, there was no combination, for me at least, uh, of things that I could do uh, to get myself out of the way that I felt in those moments. Um, you know, I tried everything. I tried exercise. I tried supplements. I tried, uh, you know, being outside in the sun more, uh, which certainly helps. Uh, those things definitely help. Uh, but for me, uh, for me in particular, and this is not true for everyone, but um, for me, you know, it's it's a chemical thing. My body just unfortunately does not produce enough serotonin or dopamine. Uh, And so for me, the thing that finally did work once I acknowledged that I couldn't do it on my own and that I needed help was a combination of therapy and medication. And so again, you know, mental health is not a one size fits all. Uh, What works for me may not work for somebody else, but you know, taking that first step though, and, and and going in and talking to a mental health professional and saying, okay, this is how I feel, and and going through and getting a, a proper diagnosis, and and then looking at a treatment plan uh, made all the difference uh, for me. And so I tell people, um, anyone who will listen <laughs> at this point, um, you know, I can't imagine. It wasn't until I felt really good for the first time that I realized how crappy I felt, uh, and, and that is that is. Infinitely true. Um, the fact that you know now that I've gotten this good balance, um, you know, of again therapy and the right medications, you know, I, I I finally feel what I would assume everyone else feels like. So uh, you know, so that was a big thing. So I think first acknowledging and, and then secondly going in and going to a mental health professional um, and uh, figuring out that the best course of action uh, is a huge deal. And, and I realize that's, that's not the easiest thing for a lot of folks out there. It wasn't easy for me. Um, I remember when I first went on uh, medication and it was like a crazy low dose because, of course, they start you off low and then kind of build you up if, if needed. Uh, I couldn't even tell. I was going to a small group at the time and I could not even tell them. I mean, it took months and then finally I admitted it. And it was like this huge weight off my chest. I was like, hey, guys, so here's what's going on. You know, I, I'm dealing with depression. Uh, I realized I couldn't, I couldn't work through this on my own, even though I've tried and I'm on this medication. And of course everybody was like, oh, that's great. You know, like, you know, they were super supportive, but there, I realized in that moment that there is this lasting stigma, um, 
and, and it, it is different for, for men than it is for women. Um, you know, unfortunately our prior generations, our, our, uh, parents, uh, our grandparents' generations really have, um, kind of added the stigma, uh, specifically for, for men where it's just, well, quit being a baby, quit being a wuss, like just suck it up, get over it. You know, uh, you, you know, it, it was a sign of weakness, the sign of, um, and even if you want to add the church aspect into it, there's this element of it where, you know, it was almost like, you know, weakness of, you know, in terms of your faith, you know, like, well, you just need to pray harder. You need to, you know, yada, yada. And that is just simply not the way mental illness works. It's not a sign of weakness. It is not a sign of weak uh, spirituality or weak faith. That All of that is nonsense. There, you won't hear me say too many things on this podcast concretely because, of course, we try to steer clear of um, you know, anyone that's, that's trying to sell you absolute certainty. Um, but <laughs> in this one case, I will say um, that those those things, uh, those ideas about mental health are absolutely, uh, and completely and utterly false. And so, um, first of all, I'm sorry if, if anyone in your life, male or female, uh, has told you at any point, uh, that your mental health, uh, was a sign of, you know, weak faith or, you know, you, know, you just need to pray it away and, and that God will take care of you. I am so sorry. Um, and uh, hopefully that you're, you're getting the help that you need now. And I would, furthermore, would say that, you know, God works through the hands of God's creation. That's us. And so God has provided doctors and therapists and medications. And, you know, my dad said it best once. My dad is, is both a pastor and a counselor. He said, you know, if you had, for example, diabetes and, you, and your body didn't produce enough insulin, would you not take your medication for that? Of course not. You know, and, and so we need to start thinking of mental health in the same way that, again, not, not every situation requires medication, but in those instances where it, it is necessary, you know, why would we not treat it the same way as any other illness, you know, especially when it comes to like physical illness. So anyway, that's my little rant. Um, the guests that we have on this week, we, we have a great conversation about uh, all, all sorts of things related to mental health. And so this week, Sarah Griffith Lund, who I was super excited uh, to speak to, she's got a prior book out called Blessed Are the Crazy, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness, Family, and Church, and has a new book out uh, called Blessed Union, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness and Marriage. And so both are fantastic books. For those of you who aren't married necessarily, don't shy away from the new book. Um, although it is uh, and does talk about you know mental health in the, in the con- constructs of, of a marriage and how uh, mental illness can really affect the balance uh, that's required in a marriage, um, it's definitely good for folks who are single, definitely good for folks who are just in a com- committed relationship and aren't necessarily married. Um, or just people who have family members even um, who are who are dealing with mental illness and, and how to, to best support uh, them and in and, and their journey. So great book, really interesting conversation. I'm so excited to have her on. Uh, she was just a delight. So hopefully this is valuable to you guys. I'm also going to put in the show notes some, uh, some links and, and, and numbers. So if you do feel... Uh, depressed to the extent where you feel like you might hurt yourself, um, you know, please, please, please call the suicide prevention hotline. I'll have that number in the show notes. Or if you know somebody else, 
who, who is in that situation, please, please, please take it seriously. Um, you know, you, you just never know uh, what battles someone else is fighting. So uh, I will include that in the show notes for sure. So check that out. Um, additionally, the music this week, uh, I want to give a shout out that for a while now, uh, we have had uh, great music referred to us. Uh, and uh, I've never mentioned this person's name, and I feel horrible now, but Lori Mahon. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Lori, but she's from Merge and she sends me great music uh, all the time. And so we've used some of the guests on the show. And so um, what a great relationship, you know, where, you know, somebody sends you music uh, that maybe you haven't heard before for a music addict like me. That's just like the greatest gift ever. So uh, so this week we're using uh, music from Mike Donahue and uh, he's got a new EP out. Um, we'll have links in the show notes, of course, to all his music. So, you know, if you like it, go check it out, go support the artist. Uh, also, you know, as always, you know, I update the Spotify playlist, you know, with, with all the guests that we use on every episode. So go check that out too. Uh, otherwise, uh, thank you for listening so much. Uh, if you want to support us, if you go to www.thedeconstructionist.com, that's our website. Uh, if you go there, We've got a blog. We've got links to our social media. We've got links to our web store. We've got t-shirts, pint glasses, coffee mugs. Uh, our Patreon link is there. So if you want to support us on a monthly basis, uh, we've got various packages there, like our book club. Uh, that's very popular. Uh, thank you so much if uh, you decide to do that. If you just want to support us in an easy, easy way, if you go to iTunes and you give us a five-star, leave us a five-star review, uh, that is an easy way to help us gain exposure. And, and really just word of mouth has always been the biggest way for us. So uh, if you think you have uh, friends or family that might benefit from the work that we're doing here, um, just letting them know is a big thing for us. So anyway, uh, thank you guys so much as always for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a fun series that I recorded a while back. Uh, but until then, enjoy this one with Sarah Griffith Lund. I wish that I Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am so excited to have you on the show tonight. It's Sarah Griffith Lund. Uh, you have three names, so uh, it, it's even trickier. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I I was really excited to have you come on because, um, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, uh, mental health advocacy and, and just mental health in general, especially when it comes to um, kind of the stigma that comes not only with just mental health in general, but with mental health and, you know, being a Christian, uh, you kind of have that double stigma. Um, your new book uh, really addresses it it well and specifically in the context of, of, of a marriage, but definitely is, I think, useful for folks who aren't even married just from a support perspective. So uh, talk a little bit about your background and, and why, why this topic? Why is it so important to you? Thank you, John. I am a Christian. I was raised in the church. My background is Lutheran and then Disciples of Christ and ordained disciples. I'm serving a United Church of Christ as a pastor. And in my journey and in my walk with Jesus, um, I have walked through the valley of the shadows of mental illness 
And uh, it wasn't ever talked about in church. You know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And our family was in that valley of the shadow of mental illness big time. And it was scary. And I was just a kid. And I didn't have any idea what was going on. And the one thing that comforted me was going to church Sunday morning and hearing the preacher say that I was a child of God, that I was loved. At the time, I was a child of a father with severe, chronic, you know, serious mental illness that um, he was not able to get treatment for. Um, he had a symptom called anosognesia, which is a symptom that doesn't allow the person to have self-insight. So my dad was a really a good person. He was an animal doctor, but his brain got um, this illness, bipolar disorder, and it got worse and worse. So the stigma in churches is really um, harmful because it makes families like mine who are going through a difficult time not know how to tell people what's happening because we're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of people thinking less of us, like there's something wrong with us. And um, as my dad's illness got worse and worse, I just felt more ashamed uh, because my dad's illness, like a lot of folks who hear voices and have um, delusional thinking, he became homeless. He lost his job. And that was also another shameful factor for me as a Christian. And so part of my walk with Jesus and with mental illness is understanding that my dad loved Jesus and Jesus loved my dad, and the mental illness was not my dad's fault. Um, he was not trying to hurt us on purpose. And so for my relationship with God and being a Christian, I had to come to Jesus and say, you know, I'm so angry about the way mental illness is destroying my family. I'm so angry at my dad for um, not taking care of himself and then not being able to take care of us. So my faith was deeply impacted by mental illness and this conversation with God about letting go of that anger. And I was able to let go of the anger by understanding my dad's behaviors in the framework of mental health. And that's my journey. In my first book, Blessed Are the Crazy, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness, Family, and Church, I go into a lot more detail about that journey with my dad. Well, it's no surprise um, that I went into adulthood and fell in love with somebody who reflected back to me a lot of the dynamics of my family of origin. So I married somebody who has serious uh, mental illness in terms of chronic um, depression, anxiety, and addiction. And it was um, in the context of marriage where I realized, wow, um, I also have a mental illness. I have post-traumatic stress disorder. What does that mean for me as a Christian? What does that mean for me as a Christian pastor? What does that mean in our Christian marriage? Um, that we want a happy marriage, but sometimes because of the depression and because of the PTSD, we don't feel happy. We love each other, but sometimes we're not able to show that love, to show that affection, to show that caring. And that can really um, disrupt a marriage because we assume that love looks a certain way. 
Um, and so what I want people to know is that whether it's a friendship that you're loving someone through or a marriage relationship or a family relationship, uh, thinking about our relationships through the lens of mental health, for me, really adds so much compassion and so much grace and this reminder that we are loved and we are more than our illness we're more than our symptoms. We're more than our diagnosis. And so I really want to give people the sense of hope and the sense that they're not alone and that God is with them. Because that stigma we talked about, that's what keeps us isolated. That's what keeps us from talking about what's really going on. And in some of the research I did for my first book, and this was in 2013, um, People who are Christian were surveyed, what would you rather have, a leprosy or mental illness? And a majority of the people would rather have leprosy than mental illness. Wow. Because um, so much of it is still seen as a character flaw, um, as maybe a punishment from God, as maybe a result of sin. And so there's a lot of theological work we can do around um, mental health as a physical condition like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, um, and that God wants to help us through medications, through Prozac, through Zoloft, through therapy, uh, that God's love and healing comes in prayer, in the Bible, and in Zoloft, and in talking to a counselor. I love that. Um, my, my dad uh, happens to be a, a Lutheran pastor and also a, a mental health counselor as well. And um, we were just talking about, uh, this is what you, you reminded me of this conversation we had. Uh, we were talking about the stigma, not only behind uh, mental health, but like if you have a mental health issue and your body just doesn't produce enough serotonin, for example, and you need medication, uh, my, my dad's like, you wouldn't not take medication if you had, if your body didn't produce enough insulin, right? Like, of course not. He's like, so why do we treat mental health so differently? You know, if my body doesn't, my body, for example, you know, from personal experience, I, I deal with uh, depression and I take med medication every day for it. And, um, to be completely honest for the first year or so, I think after I started taking medication, after I got to the point where I said, you know what, I've tried exercising my way out of this, eating my way out of this. I've tried everything, uh, eating healthy, by the way, <laughs> but it, nothing else was working. And I finally broke down and started on medication. I couldn't even tell my friends, you know? And so I, I love this quote you have at the beginning of the book where you say, we don't tell the stories we most need to hear. We tell the stories we want other people to hear. And so how much of that is just getting the ball rolling initially by just being comfortable with talking about it. It's everything. It is everything. That's why we say breaking the silence, you know, telling our true stories is how we will find healing. And thank you, John, for sharing um, that you, like, you know, half of America, you know, are experiencing symptoms of depression. We know the pandemic this summer, the data says that half of Americans are feeling depressed and anxious. And so a lot of folks could really benefit from some assistance um, to get those serotonin levels equalized. You know, it might just, it might be a situational thing. You know, maybe for the next couple years, we all need to be taking some serotonin to help us get through the pandemic. And the pandemic is nobody's fault. So it's not your fault, uh, but we all need help. And I, I love that you shared that about you. 
Um, another thing about Christianity is this perfectionism, you know, this myth. And um, in some uh, traditions talk about, you know, perfecting your faith as a way to become more holy. And so I think that can be dangerous when we think we have to be perfect. And so anything that shows flaws or that we're not perfect um, can look like we're not being faithful. So faithful is really different than being perfect. I think the faithful thing is to take your antidepressants, right? I mean, God has given us science uh, to use it and to help us feel better. Um, like you, you know, I've been on a journey too. I realized that I was drinking a couple of glasses of wine after a stressful day and um, it was turning into a pattern. And I sat back and I thought, you know, I don't have to handle stress this way. I wonder what I'm covering up by drinking wine. And so I've been uh, without alcohol for a year and I feel like I've been healthier for me to find other ways to handle my stress. And the big thing for me was to remove the thing that was so stressful, you know, rather than like putting a Band-Aid on it or putting alcohol in my body, really trying to change my life so I'm not exposed to that thing that was stressing me out so much. Yeah, I think that's huge is, is realizing that stress is the symptom of something else and, and getting to the root of it as opposed to, as you said, kind of throwing a bandage over it. One of the terms that you use at the beginning of the book that I think is, is really important, and, and you define it early, is this term ableism. So what, what is ableism and how does it negatively impact how we view mental illness? Thank you for that question. In my work for the United Church of Christ, I serve as a minister for disabilities and mental health justice. And so when we talk about ableism, we're really talking about what does God's justice look like? God's justice means treating everyone as valued, worthy uh, people of dignity, love, and respect, and that all of us are made in the image of God. Ableism is when we say able-bodied people are better than, more worthy than people with disabilities. So it's sort of like the idea of racism. You know, we have race, and then racism is saying one race is better than another. So ableism is um, a way of discrimination against people with disabilities, and it's what leads to injustice. And so naming ableism is helpful, and I talk about ableism in terms of our marriage um, theories and the way we think about a happy, healthy marriage is really coming from an assumption that people in the marriage are able-bodied or have neurotypical uh, brains, you know, brains without neurodiversity. And um, we live in an ableist society, right, that favors people who are able-bodied. But what I have learned is that we are all temporarily able-bodied. And you could say we are all temporarily neuronormative. I'm not, but maybe your listeners <laughs> feel like right now they're neuronormative. I would say that's temporary too because our mental health is on a spectrum and it really can change moment to moment. It certainly changes year to year over a lifetime. We all have trouble dealing with the pain Cause when we're hurt at all we push ourselves away But you 
Oh, so true. Uh, I think one the next question I want to ask you, maybe, maybe we should have led with this, but um, how do you define mental illness? Because I really like the way that you kind of break it out in the book. Thank you. I come from a social work training. So I was trained at Rutgers University in the School of Social Work. So I definitely, in my uh, training and background, I have a bias towards the medical model. And for me, as a Christian, that is helpful to end stigma, saying that mental health is a part of our physical health and to think about our brain as a brain that's impacted by environment, by um, genetics, by events, and by unknown things. And so mental illness is when our mental health is impacted so that it's disrupting the way we live, we work, we relate, we function. And there's 300 you know, different forms of mental illnesses in the, the Bible of mental health, the, um, the diagnostic uh, statistical manual. So I like to joke, I have the DSM in one hand and the Bible in the other, and we're <laughs> just going to go and have these conversations. Um, and so the good news for me, thinking about mental illness as a, me- as a medical issue, is that there's ways to treat it, and there's ways to recover and to manage your symptoms. So it's not this totally mysterious thing, like this cloud that just lands on you one day and lifts the other. Um, we're doing a lot more research. We're New medications are coming out all the time. New forms of therapy are coming out. And so I find hope um, that with, with help, and that's the key word, with getting help and resources, we can all feel better. Um, and the thing about stigma is stigma, and there's self-stigma. You can have self-stigma where you're in denial about what's happening to you because it's hard for you to admit to yourself there's an issue. Because of stigma, it takes the average person seven years to get treatment So from the onset of symptoms, most people kind of tough it out and live with it for seven years before they seek professional help. And it's not like lack of resources. It's not lack of mental health providers that makes that seven years drag out. It's the self-stigma. Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, And not surprising because we've built generation after generation, this, this false notion that it's a weakness or especially, you know, in terms of, of the male perspective, you know, like, oh, you know, how many times, uh, you know, have you heard somebody say, just suck it up or like, get over it or quit being a baby, you know? And, And it's not that easy, obviously, if it's a chemical imbalance, there's something much, much deeper and more complex happening there. Yeah. I love the intersectionality you're raising about gender. That's huge. Um, We know that uh, men and women both experience mental health challenges, but the taboo and the shame is really significant uh, for men. And then we can look at cultural groups too, you know, people of color, the black community, the Latinx community, lots of stigma, lots of taboos and shame, and a level of mistrust of the, the health professions. And so that's another barrier is that there's been so much harm done to people of color, um, experimentation done that, um, and there's very few um, professionals who are people of color. And so we really need a lot more social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists who are people of color so that people seeking treatment will feel like they really have a safe place where someone understands them. 
Wow. One, one of the other things that I would love for you to talk about that you mentioned in the book is just the, the, the soci- social aspect of it. Um, meaning, I think you have a quote in there, and I, I can't remember the, the statistic off the top of my head, but people who um, you know, are in um, socioeconomic areas uh, where maybe there's more poverty are, are way more um, at risk for mental illness. Yes, the uh, World Health Organization, that's how they uh, talk. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Talk about the risks, the risk factors. So people who are in low economic um, environments are at higher risk. And that makes sense because when you're having difficult financial times, that's very stressful. You probably are not getting the rest that you need. You're probably not getting the healthy foods that you need. If you are housing insecure, you're probably not sleeping well. And you're probably not getting hydration. So basic things for survival, like getting good sleep, eating healthy food, drinking lots of water, having free time to rest and to play. All of those are what's called protective factors. Uh, They're very simple things, but they protect our mental health and keep us feeling well. It also uh, reminds me of adverse childhood experiences, ACE, A-C-E. And that's another way to look at, um, you know, for your listeners, you might want to go and Google ACE and there's online surveys you can take. There's some scales are 15 questions and it can tell you how your childhood experiences may be a factor in, in some of your mental health experiences as an adult. I know I have 13 of the 15 adverse childhood experiences and that was helpful for me to think about as I think of my story of being a Christian and having a mental health challenge. I can look at my personal history and say to myself, it's not my fault. Look what I've been through. I'm not a victim of mental illness. I'm a survivor. And that narrative from victim to survivor is really critical in our healing from trauma. And there's some really great theological thinking about trauma and healing narratives. Nancy Bowen wrote about the book of Ezekiel and the valley, going through the valley of the dry bones. And she says that Ezekiel was traumatized, uh, dealing with a whole people group who were traumatized. And the fact that Ezekiel wrote that book was part of his healing journey, part of the people of Israel's healing journey. Because when we tell our stories as people of faith, we can look back and see where God showed up, how God was with us in the midst of our hardest challenges. I think one of the 
saddest things about some forms of mental illness, and there's been some really cool research, that the part of our brain that processes spirituality um, can be impacted by symptoms of mental health challenges. So there can be a symptom of, say, depression that impacts the part of your brain that thinks spiritually so that you might be in a point where you are doubting God. You might be feeling like God is not with you, that God doesn't love you, that God has abandoned you. And it's not because your faith is weak. It could be a symptom of your mental health challenge. And I think as Christians, it's important to talk about that because we really need other Christians to walk beside us when we feel like God has left us. We need someone next to us to say, "Uh, I'm right here. God is right here. I know you can't feel God. I know you're you're feeling um, so detached from God but I love you and God loves you and I'm going to be with you until you can feel again. Because sometimes there's that spiritual numbness and it's that valley of the shadows that I talk about. It's that valley of dry bones that Ezekiel goes through. Um, I want to let people know that that's something a lot of folks experience and it's there's shame around admitting that, right? And there's stigma around doubt. But for folks with mental health challenges, it's a part of the experience. Gosh, um, one of the things you touched on that you actually uh, played right into my next question, so well done. <laughs> um, you, you point out something that seems so obvious and yet like we don't often think about, and that's the fact that when we're, when we're talking about the Bible, the Bible is written before the scientific advancements that really identified mental illnesses, and, and the treatments that go along with them are, are very new. Um, you know, you talk about um, your dad's experience, and then it made me think of— um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Stephen Hinshaw, uh, his work. Uh, he has a book out that came out a few years ago about his dad uh, dealing with mental illness back in, you know, I think it was like the 40s and 50s and how, you know, there was really no treatment at the time. You know, his dad would just disappear for months, you know. And, and so when we talk about the Bible, we're, we're talking about something that didn't have a name yet. And so, but you point out, and this is where I, I think where my question comes in here is, you point out right, rightly, uh, I think, that there are examples in the Bible if you know where to look. And so where do we see mental illness as it, as it you know, shows up in the, in the Bible? Thank you so much. You know, Ezekiel, um, Nancy Bowen and her commentary on Ezekiel, she sees in Ezekiel signs of depression. There were times where he could not leave his house. There were times when Ezekiel faced... Um, this, this, you know, valley of dead bones and dry bones. Um, I also, my go-to um, is the garrison, the demoniac, and I love that story. You know, he is naked, he is in chains, he is self-harming, and he encounters Jesus. And what is so healing about that encounter with Jesus, it says that the person is restored to their right mind, the healing comes in restoring the person to community. 
the person wants to follow Jesus and get on the boat. But Jesus says, no, go back to the town where you came from and tell them about me. And so Jesus is saying, you know, you don't need to be isolated in chains. And I, it breaks my heart because we do that today. We put people in chains in prisons. My cousin was put on death row. He was a child survivor of serious abuse. He had um, several mental illnesses, and we put him on death row and executed him. And so we still treat people today. We lock them up, and we throw pills at them. But what Jesus says is if you want healing, if you want to build the, the kingdom of God here on earth, we've got to restore people back to community. Healing comes when we experience belonging. And so I like that idea of healing. It's not a cure. You know, if you live with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, that might never be cured. But you can experience recovery and healing and wholeness through this um, loving embrace by God's people. And that's why we need faith communities to really become places of belonging for people living with mental health challenges and their loved ones. Yeah, I love that because in the book you talk about um, the importance of counseling even for, for healthy people, for healthy marriages, and ultimately support from community. And I know we've talked a lot about that on this podcast uh, just in general uh, since we started uh, approximately five years ago now, um, how, just how important community is and the, and the support from community. Yeah, Deb, you know, faith communities are listed by mental health professionals as a protective factor. The thing is, it can also be a risk factor. If you're in a community that stigmatizes people that say, pray it away, flush your pills and pray it away. Um, if you're in a community that stigmatizes suicide, that puts people more at risk. So it's really important we do this intentional work so that our faith communities have protective factors that we say, we will pray with you, we'll read Bible with you, we'll be in small groups with you, and we're going to check on you to say, you taking your meds? Have you talked to your therapist? When someone dies of suicide, we're going to shower them with love and grace and not cast judgment and not put platitudes around very complicated grief experience that people go through. So that's why I like uh, to think of the proactive ways we can prevent suicide. We can prevent serious mental illness. We can be a place where we offer mental health first aid. That's a nonprofit, and I love to see churches hosting that. You can do it online. There's an eight-hour course, and you can get certified in mental health first aid. So great kind of mental health 101 training. It'll help you look for the risk factors, the red flags, and very importantly, it'll help you know how to respond if someone seems to be at risk for self-harm. And honestly, I got to tell you, most of us don't have a clue about what to do. Mm. But we need to be ready uh, because people during the pandemic um, are thinking more about suicide and our youth and our young adults are really having a hard time. So we've got to be prepared for how to help people. I love that. I've never heard of that organization. I'm going to, I'm going to look that up when we're done. But uh, the other thing I think that's so important that you mentioned in your book is you talk about the need for mental health education uh, starting early. So, so even kids and youth know uh, what to look for, because I think you mentioned a statistic where uh, 
some overwhelming uh, percentage of people uh, when when they're I guess when their uh, mental health um, symptoms start to present, it's by teenage years into college. It, it seems like yes, yeah, at least like a quarter um, have their first really onset. In, in the teen years and young adult years, and families are totally unprepared for that. And the kids are unprepa- unprepared for that. And so I, I equate it to sex education. You know, we, we make sure that at some point our kids know about the birds and the bees. We got to make sure at some point they are prepared for how to take care of their own mental health and the mental health of their friends. Um, I have a lot of nieces and nephews who are teenagers and they've all got cell phones, and they're all in group text messages, and they're texting each other all hours of the night about their struggles and their thoughts of self-harm. And I'm really concerned that they don't have the tools they need to tell an adult and to get help. Hmm. That's, that's so important. Um, I think one of the other important things that you mentioned, too, along with that is um, just, I, I guess, kind of uh, for lack of... A, better way of putting it, um, almost solidarity. You have this quote by, I'm probably going to mess his name up, Mark Lukacs. Yes. Is that right? Okay. So he says, we chose to redefine uh, her illness. He's talking about his wife who, who suffers from bipolar disorder. He says, we, we chose to redefine her illness as something we shared, ours and not just hers. How huge is that? It's huge. It's huge. And I have to say I'm guilty because um, it, early on in our marriage, um, I was in denial about my own PTSD. I, w- I had this self-image of perfectionism, which is not healthy at all. And so I had to break through my own idealism of myself and, and have a come to Jesus. And so the challenges in our marriage wasn't just what my husband was bringing to it with his mental health challenges. It was me, too. You know, it was me. And our marriage really um, took a major positive turn when I was able to come to it um, after individual counseling. And so I would say that um, it, it's an us. You know, sometimes it's he said, she said, you know, we point fingers of blame. And this is an us uh, situation. And that's why this book is so good for, for everyone, because we all know people in, in Blessed Unions, you know, we, we love and care for people who are in these partnerships. And like I said, the stigma is so real. There's so much tenderness and there's so much taboo that it's hard to even tell our best friends what's really going on. And what I'm hearing from readers is that this book is the friend that they need. And that makes my heart just like explode with joy because I think that's why I wrote it. I needed a friend in this really tender and taboo situation that I could be real with. And so um, I'm really happy that this book is reaching people to let them know they're not alone and that they are loved. I I think that's beautiful uh, for one. And and for two, I think you you touch on some other really kind of, I think, sensitive topics that you talk for one about, um, because of course the the context of the book is about marriage and and how to to work uh, together through mental illness within the context of a marriage. But you talk about what happens when um, you're in a situation where really your only choice, your only healthy choice is to go through divorce, which Obviously, it's no one's intention. I don't think anybody gets married and says, you know what, one day I can't wait to get divorced. You know, that, that doesn't happen. But 
Um, you have this quote that I thought would just really hit home for me. You say, while we seek to honor our marriage vows, not every marriage honors us. And that was so profound to me. And I think a lot of people probably need to hear that. Uh, but you talk about sometimes it's the, it's the only healthy option from not only the physical standpoint, you know, if you're in danger, obviously, um, but also from the mental and emotional standpoint. And the spiritual standpoint, too. Um, and yes. this comes up all the time, right? Because we make our covenant to our partner before God. And so there's a sense of, am I, am I breaking my covenant with God? Am I disappointing or letting God down? Is God going to abandon me? And the answer is that God's covenant is that it's that rainbow that overarches us our whole lives and will never forsake us and abandon us. And so marriages are meant to bless us to be a healthy place for us to grow more and more in God's love. And my family had to have a divorce, my mom and dad, because it was not healthy and it was not safe emotionally or physically for our family. And so there are really important reasons why divorce can be the best thing for you and for the other person and for uh, God's love to be made real in your lives. Sometimes the best way to heal is to be a part. Yeah, I think I think that's such a good point. You know, sometimes the 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 d- dissolution or the breakup of the marriage can serve as the uh, as the catalyst to getting that other person into the treatment that they so desperately need. Yes, and it's definitely a discernment process, and that's why we've got to talk about these things because I bet there's some of your listeners who are in that place. They're in that really hard place about, you know, do we separate? Do we divorce? How much further can we go on like this? Uh, People are feeling really um, lost, and there's a sense of where do I go for help? Yeah, one of the things too, I think that's important that you that you note in the book, and um, you, and you've kind of mentioned referenced this at, at several points, is it, but I think it, um, it it deserves to be uh, to, to be mentioned again. But like this idea that uh, this notion of perfection and the fact that just because you get treatment, you know, obviously that's a huge first step. But even when you get treatment, you're still going to have bad days. Uh, it, it never completely goes away. Like I know for me, I, I have a chemical imbalance. My body just does not produce enough serotonin or dopamine, one of the two. Um, and that's never going to completely go away. And I still have days where I'm a little down. Um, but, you know, that's rarer and fewer and far between. But I do have bad days. And it's always something that's going to be kind of on the, you know, on the, on the fringe. <laughs> yes. Thank you for naming that. That is so real. And so I think it, for me, it helps back to that kind of medical model that I find helpful. It's not a perfect model, but for me, it's, it helps normalize it. So when I think of chronic illness, you know, there's lots of different kinds of chronic illness and this is one of them. And so to help, I guess, make my real, make my expectations, right, more realistic because it's a chronic illness Um, It won't go away, most likely. And so what do we do when we have a bad day? Um, How do we handle that? And that's that's been our week, John. (laughs) Like these past few days in our house have been the the low days, right? And so I have a child. I have a a fifth grader. And so what I've learned um, is to tell him, be very honest with him. You know, this is a low time. This is a time where 
you know, dad needs more uh, space. We're not going to um, crowd him. We're going to give him the space. And then to tell my child, it won't last forever. You know, probably tomorrow, dad will be feeling better. And I think um, for kids, we need to tell them these things because they are noticing and seeing and feeling everything. And if we don't tell them what's happening, uh, they're going to make up their own stories, like I did as a kid. Nobody told me it was a mental illness, so I made up a story that these hard things were happening because I was not worthy of love, that I did something wrong to make my dad act this way. So I do not want my son to think that um, the, the depression in our family is his fault or anything that he's done. And so... Um, that's why I love these conversations, because it helps us have more compassion for each other. I need to shut up sometimes and listen to you Even when you're feeling tongue-tied and you're fumbling through Words sound so different in our minds How do they sound to you? I think that's such an important thing. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about um, uh, divorce and, and how to, how to uh, approach that topic with children. And also in a way where we're, you know, you're, you're saying, look, this has nothing to do with you, um, you know, because you're right. I think kids do tend to take a lot on themselves. And without having those honest conversations, I think, you know, the default mechanism for children is to say, this must be something I'm doing. So, each chapter, I, I love the way you've got the, the book structured. So each chapter is a different couple um, with a different uh, combination, uh, oftentimes of mental illnesses. And then you've got reflection questions at the end and tips. Um, so talk about the way that you intentionally set this book up, because I think it's really cool the way that you did it. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I, I wanted to marry spirituality, Christianity, scriptures, and mental health and mental illness and show that those aren't two exclusive topics, but we can interweave them. And I know that when I got married and I did premarital counseling, we never talked about money, sex, or mental illness, right? <laughs> so when I think about those marriage vows, you know, do you promise to love and to stay with your partner through sickness and health? Whenever I thought of sickness, I thought that was like cancer. I mean, that's what I assumed that meant. I never imagined the sickness would be, you know, what we've said, like this chronic depression that would kind of always be there, even though it's in treatment and recovery, there's still some level of it. And so I thought, what would it look like to look at those vows through the lens of mental health challenges and take the beloved, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and love is kind. Well, when there's an anxiety attack, when I'm having a trauma trigger, I'm not very kind or patient. So how can I honor my marriage, you know, when things are kind of all falling apart? So I tell these stories inspired by couples I've had the honor uh, to interview and talk with as a way to um, explore how can we be faithful even in the midst of the most you know, difficult time that we're going through. Mm. So I know we're running short on time. So for, for my last question for you, um, 
I, I love the book, by the way, and, uh, and I think it's going to be really, really helpful for a lot of people out there. Um, what do you want people to take away from the, from the book? This is um, an invitation to have conversation. I believe that mental health matters, that talking about it, breaking the silence about it will save lives. And that the more we talk about it, the more honest and open and vulnerable we are, the more hope we can share. You know, hope is contagious. And so the more we normalize that a lot of us are going through these things, we start building community, we start building connection, we break down that isolation that happens because of silence and stigma. And so I would love for every household to have Blessed Union and every church to have Blessed Union and to really use it as an opportunity to have the conversation. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, before I let you go, where can people go uh, to stay up on, on top of uh, everything that you're working on and go get a copy of the book? Excellent. Well, it's published by chalicepress.com. So you can order, uh, you get a 20% discount from the publisher. There's bulk uh, discounts. If you order 10 books, I come and do a free one-hour Zoom session with your group, which I love to do that. And then my blog and my updates are on my website at sarahgriffithlund.com. And if we have one more moment, I'd love to read a brief part of my book with you all. So this came about at the end of my book. You know, I'm writing this book and I get to the last chapter and this comes to me. And I feel like it was a God thing that God spoke to me. And I want to offer this to your listeners as a sign of hope. Uh, Maybe this will resonate with you and your marriage or that of a friend. And this is an opportunity to make a, a new vow for marriage or to renew your vows. And so it goes like this. This is my promise to you. I will see you as a whole person and not as your worst symptom. I will love you for who I know you to be and not for how you feel or behave. This is my promise to me. I will see myself as a whole person and not as my worst symptom. I will love myself for who I am known to be and not for how I feel or behave. This is my promise to us. We will seek support from family, friends, and wider circles of care so that we can faithfully fulfill these promises. We will bless our marriage each and every day, knowing God is love and trusting that God is with us. Ah, you got me choked up over here, sir. (laughs) That's beautiful and and a perfect way to end it. So thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. I really enjoy the conversation. Let's do it again. I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. you down
Sold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.